Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. for joining us for another episode of the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. The Joint Office of Energy and Transportation was created through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law to facilitate collaboration between the U.S. Departments of Energy and Transportation and provide support for a number of programs that look to deploy a network of electric vehicle chargers, zero-emission fueling infrastructure, and zero-emission transit and school buses. The executive director of the office is Gabe Klein. Gabe previously served as the CEO of the Chicago and Washington, D.C. Departments of Transportation. He's our guest this month on the podcast. Gabe, welcome to ITE Talks Transportation. Thanks, Bernie. Thanks for having me. Your office is relatively new, the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. Why don't we start off with you telling us a bit about what your charge is and some of the key initiatives that you're strongly advocating? Absolutely. And... A lot of people don't know this, but the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation is actually the first time in its history that the federal government has created an office that spanned multiple agencies. And when I heard this was happening, I got really excited because I like groundbreaking opportunities to break down silos and to change the way things work, right? And to make things work better in a way that they're focused on outcomes for people. So this was an exciting challenge for me. The joint office was created by the bipartisan infrastructure law. So basically, when they started looking at what it was going to take to implement the energy and transportation program that had passed in bill, and you're talking about, you know, hydrogen hubs and electrification of the system and figuring out transmission and the public right of way. They said, you know what, we need, we need to do something a little bit more robust. We need to do something that's going to accelerate the deployment. We need to figure out how to provide technical assistance to states, to cities, to metropolitan planning organizations. We need to figure out how to convene industry with government. And we need to figure out how to align the world-class resources we have at DOT and DOE uh, and possibly other agencies to implement this as fast as humanly possible, this change, because we do have the climate issues are staring us down mm -hmm. and we need to move fast. And so the president and the White House and the teams at DOT and DOE came together and said, let's form the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. I actually served on the transition team for transportation and we did broach this topic. And then I think when the bill actually came together and they, they looked at it and they said, wow, we have $5 billion to build this national high-speed charging network. We're going to have these charging and fueling infrastructure grants. So the $5 billion is formula money, meaning it flows through the standard process from DOT to the states. The states can implement it themselves. They can subgrant to local jurisdictions. But then the charging and fueling infrastructure grants, that's $2.5 billion for corridor and community. And that is much more complex in some ways because people apply for it, public entities, but then you have to actually 
implement and you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of towns and cities. And then just to round it out, they wanted us to be responsible for supporting the FTA bus program, which is 5.6 billion for low and no emission transit bus deployments. And then another 5 billion through EPA for school buses. And so right there, you've got almost $20 billion that we are, are supporting and it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And then above and beyond that, there are eight other areas that if you Google the MOU for the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation, you'll see where Secretary Granholm and Secretary Buttigieg actually put an MOU together. It's only a few pages for our office, and it outlines training and certification programs, performance of national and regionalized uh, study on vehicle charging, transmission pilots in the public right away, and on and on. So we have a lot of work to do, put it that way. And we're a five-year office. Mm-hmm. So we were stood up with a $300 million operating budget for five years. We could be around six or seven. We'll see what the need is and how much funding we have. And so I like that as well, that this is about getting things done, putting things in the ground, changing the way of life in a positive way for the American people, whether it's deliveries and freight or how they get to work. And, you know, saving people considerable amounts of money as well on their transportation. A large percentage of our members represent consultants, local government agencies, and those are the ones that are expected to implement electrification by way of charging infrastructure, transit equipment, some of the things you just touched on, and overall transportation policy. A lot of the federal activity to date, and I realize it's still early on in the process, has been focused at the state level. Can you outline some of the things that are going on to expand this further into the local level and to help provide additional resources such as information, grant funding and guidance for these agencies and consultants, please? Yes. And as you know, or I think you know, I actually have been a consultant. Um, I had my own firm uh, with partners, CityFi. And then I also served, which I think we'll talk about later, in local government or in local state government in mm-hmm. D.C., And so I'm very sympathetic and I try to look through the eyes of not just the consumer and what's going to give them the best possible experience or the small business owner, but also the local government official, the consultant who is supporting them. Because without them, without that constellation of partners, we cannot get this done. The federal government sets a framework, sets policy and provides funding where there might be a market failure, for instance, right? Catalyzes this movement, this growth. But then everybody else takes over and the local government in particular, the market forces, the state government, super duper important. So I touched on the CFI program, which is the Charging and Fueling Infrastructure Discretionary Grant Program. One thing I didn't mention, whether it's the NEVI program, the Discretionary Grant Program, these are five-year programs. And so if you miss the opportunity to apply for a grant, don't worry. We've put out two years of money. October 1st is the new fiscal year. There's three more years of money coming. And local jurisdictions can apply for CFI grants. Also, there's some flexibility if you apply for a corridor grant, for instance. You can put in hydrogen, not just electric or liquid natural gas. And we understand that for different use cases, there may be different needs. And so there's a lot more flexibility there. And then I would also mention that we 
put out a 10% uh, set aside money, which actually I shouldn't even call it that because it's just going to confuse people. But there was a 10% holdback on the $5 billion. And Secretary Buttigieg at DOT can designate that through federal highways for anything really that he thinks is needed, that they think is needed to fulfill our charge to the American people to build a national network of alternative and sustainable fuels, electric, et cetera. And so this first tranche, $100 million, was put out uh, last week, and it is a repair and replace program because we have a lot of old infrastructure out there. We've been through a, a few phases of chargers. You know, I remember putting a charger in DC on the street in 2010. It's still there. It's not really working very well. <laughs> and so we have in the alternative, uh, actually, if you go to our website, driveelectric.gov and go to data, you can see how many chargers are publicly available and entered in. And you can see how many are temporarily unavailable. If there's a charger that's in there is temporarily unavailable, then it is available for funding to be repaired and upgraded to the new minimum standards that, that we put out in February with federal highways um, or to be replaced. Those could be DC fast chargers. They could be the slower level two chargers and about 90% of them are level two chargers. So we really encourage people listening to this to please go to our website, look at that funding opportunity that federal highways put out that we helped formulate and look for those broken chargers in your community or if you're in the government, make sure those are entered in to what's called the AFDC, which they'll know what that is if they're in government, and then they can be funded. So that's a huge opportunity for local government. We'll have more with Gabe Klein right after this message. Do you want to reach more than 17,000 transportation professionals? Podcasts like this one are a great way to reach a dedicated audience of listeners. Sponsoring an ITE podcast is a cost-effective way to gain exposure and build brand awareness. ITE offers podcasts on key issues like safety, connected and automated vehicles, and transportation management systems and operations, ensuring your message is heard by the right people. For more information, contact Jill Andrew at the Wyman Company. Her email is J-A-N-D-R-E-U at the Wyman Company, W-Y-M-A-N dot com. You touched on this already that you were the CEO for DDOT in Washington, D.C. Also, you were the CEO in, in Chicago. And you already talked about how that informs some of what you're doing now. But Let's dig into that a little deeper. Tell me about how some of those experiences, whether it was in Chicago or the District of Columbia, or even as a consultant, is going to help shape some of what you're doing, the policies that you're going to be enacting. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, you know, I came out of the private sector about 15 years in the private sector when I went into government. And I had done a lot of interesting things, car sharing company, my own electric organic food truck company. I'd worked in um, telecommunications and, and technology, but I was really always a social entrepreneur. Like I wanted to do things that were good for people and that I thought had the opportunity for monetary return. In some cases they did, in some cases they, they didn't. But my motto was always, if it's too easy, it's probably not worth doing. Like you want to break new ground. Mm -hmm. And entering into government, the opportunity to be a social intrapreneur in government was really exciting. And I worked for two dynamic mayors, uh, Adrian Fenty in DC and Rahm Emanuel in Chicago. And they both gave me a lot of rope 
and a lot of freedom to make that change and do things differently, whether it's building streetcars or a new river walk in Chicago or two amazing bike share programs, you know, that were the first of their type in the country. And so I try to bring that creativity to this job. And the federal government obviously is, is different, uh, many levels of bureaucracy, much bigger. But I also try to look through the eyes of people. And so I think it's easy in this job to say, hey, our goal that the president set for us is let's get 500,000 chargers in the ground by 2030. Like that's a fundamental goal we have. But when we think about Justice 40 and we think about equity and we think about really serving people where they are, I think we have to look at mobility outcomes for people, transportation outcomes when it comes to business and social outcomes. So like, are we cleaning the air for people? Are we lowering childhood asthma rates? Are we making it faster, easier, cheaper, and healthier for people to get to work? Or maybe they don't get to work anymore and they work from their home and they use mobility for recreation. So, you know, that means freight traveling by electric train or, you know, hydrogen trucks or electric trucks. It means people traveling by walking, biking, or electric bikes, clean transit, electric vehicles of all types. And then ultimately, like, is this an opportunity for us to not just electrify everything or use clean fuels, but to create a better quality of life for people and maybe even safer streets as well. So I don't believe in just doing one thing because I think a lot of times you have an opportunity to wrap a lot of other improvements in. As a quick example, if we're going to run uh, utility lines for curbside charging for cars, why don't we think about taxis and ride hail? Why don't we think about electric bikes and scooters? It's not necessarily going to cost anymore to think about all the modes at the same time. And so we're trying to be comprehensive and holistic in encouraging uh, states and cities to do integrated planning. And we're here to support them. So we have teams of technical assistance people. We have people at the national labs that have incredible data analytics backgrounds. And we'll do everything from providing people data that they can't get because they don't have a supercomputer to testifying before a school district on uh, why electric school buses are a good investment. And everything in between, anybody can go to rideelectric.gov and go to the contact us page. You send us a message, we'll get back to you guaranteed within 48 hours. We don't necessarily always have the answer. If we have to get it from EPA, or HUD or the White House, we'll go get it because we're the front door to the federal government for this topic. Again, something that you touched on a little bit earlier, you talked a little bit about standards for electrical charging infrastructure. What role are you playing when it comes to setting those standards and the policies for it? A very central role, actually. Federal highways, you know, I would say in some ways our primary partner, a great team of folks over there that we work with, they have a lot of the funding. They have great relationships, particularly with the states, and they know all the rules and regulations. And what we're doing is we're bringing a lot of innovation and current thinking. We've hired people from Google, uh, Rivian, uh, Lyft, utilities, ChargePoint. So we're bringing in really current thinking. And then when we worked on setting the minimum standards, we had the, the latest and greatest thinking, not just about where we are today, 
but people that were already thinking about skating to where the puck is going to be in five years. And, you know, Federal Highways has been around for a long time, very smart people. And I think between us and them and some of the talent, the, the Department of Energy and the National Labs, the minimum standards that we put out in February, which you can find on our website, are really thoughtful and they aim to protect the consumer, but not dictate to industry what they should do. And that's one of the reasons we enabled the Tesla NAX connector to be utilized as well as the traditional European CCS connector, because we want industry to have the freedom to do what is best for them. As long as, again, as long as we have interoperability and the customer is protected and it's a safe system. Building on that a little bit, these standards are going to apply, I assume across the board. If you're from a small agency, a local government, let's say, and you're looking at these standards and again, given some of your experience working at local government, although these were rather large local governments that you were working yeah. for, how does those standards, those policies impact smaller agencies that are going to be turning over roadside equipment less frequently than perhaps their larger state government partners would? Well, fundamentally, we tried to break it down so it's really simple for people to understand whether they're in the business or they're in the a small town government, we want charging to be predictable and reliable experience. And we stood up uh, the ChargeX consortium that brought together over 60 companies and others are joining every day with three national labs to actually work on improving the quality of charging all over America with the existing system and future. We want chargers to be working when drivers need them. So we put in a 97% uptime reliability requirement. And that's to protect these folks in local government so that when they enter into a contract with our funding, the contractor knows that they have to perform to that center. So we're trying to simplify it and make it easy for them. We also want drivers to be able to find a charger when they need it. So we put data standards in place so that there's going to be a public API. There's a protocol so that every charging company will put that data out. And when you go into Google Maps or Apple Maps or on the government website, you'll be able to see, oh, here's the locations, here's what they charge. Are they available or not? Are they up or down? And are they accessible if you have a disability, for instance? And we have disability requirements as well, ADA. Oh, and then consumer protection to make sure drivers don't have to have multiple apps and accounts. And so we're working on building a system that's interoperable where you can just have a credit card loaded in your phone or a bank account or cash app or anything because different people like to use different payment methods and all that really matters is that you can pay, right? Mm -hmm. So we're trying to simplify it so that local government doesn't have to figure it out for themselves, jump through a whole bunch of hoops and yet maintain some flexibility for what they want to do. But the thing with charging and the reason like we have 150 kilowatt minimum for the NEVI program four ports every 50 miles is that we don't want to have a disparate system where like you go over the border from North Carolina to Virginia and it feels like a totally different experience, right? You have to figure out all over again how to use it. So regionality, national standards, hugely important to remove the friction for the consumer. So they feel like they can just pull up. They don't have to be stressed and anxious and they can just use the system. Gabe, I just want to dig a little deeper on one of the things you just mentioned Right now on my phone, I have a, a plug-in hybrid. So I've got on my phone apps for a lot of different charging systems. Are you envisioning that there could be one app that would work on all of these systems at one point? What we'd really like to have 
is a common set of APIs so that any company or any government or anybody that has a charger out there puts out their data publicly through an API. We can aggregate that at the federal level, but anybody else can too, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody can utilize that data. So for instance, in the transit industry, it's about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, folks are working on um, GTFS, which is a standard for transit information. So all the transit systems across the country now publish their information, like where is the bus? When is it pulling up to the next stop? How much does it cost? All of that is through this GTFS system. And so no matter what app you subscribe to, they pretty much pull from that GTFS. The same thing needs to happen with electric charging because we're going to have different types of stations owned by different people, just like you have now with gas, right? But because this is all digital and networked and interconnected, we have the opportunity, unlike gas, which is electromechanical, to be able to say, hey, you're traveling 100 miles you know, from here, I'm in DC, to Richmond, and here's all the chargers that are available, and here's what they cost, here's how fast they charge. Oh, and by the way, there's a couple down here that aren't available, so you may not want to stop there. If you're a Tesla driver, you have a lot of that with a supercharger network now. We want that to be available for everybody, no matter what kind of car you're driving and what kind of trip you're taking. Okay, most of our discussion today is focused on the charging infrastructure, but obviously the other side of that are the vehicles that need to be charged. What role is your office playing on the vehicular side? And, and along with that, what do you see as the trajectories for vehicle production and infrastructure build out currently in terms of keeping those aligned? This is really interesting. I mean, every week it seems like there's new vehicles being announced by American companies, foreign companies that want to build on American soil because the president has made it so advantageous to locate factories here and create jobs here in this country. Definitely on the vehicle side and the charger side, there's a real push to make these in America and create jobs here. And I think that's a really interesting component, particularly when you start looking at the vehicles. You know, we support clean school bus program and the low no transit programs. And these are very large and expensive vehicles. But there's also this amazing opportunity uh, with these large vehicles to do vehicle to grid integration and start to use the vehicles as uh, energy storage devices, right? And charge them off peak at very low rates store and then send back to the grid when there's real demand and rates are typically higher, right? Uh, or uh, from a resilience standpoint, when you have storms coming to be able to use those vehicles as part of the grid. And I think that is really, really exciting. In terms of like vehicle models and all of that, I mean, we're seeing lots of different types of vehicles coming to the fore. Electric bikes are actually outselling electric cars and have been for a number of years. They're so much cheaper. In urban areas, they serve a lot of people's needs for the 70% of trips that are less than three miles in urbanized areas. We're seeing small electric vehicles like the Bolt EUV that are very, very popular. We're seeing SUVs come to the fore now, uh, like the Kia EV9 and pickup trucks, you know, like the Lightning and the Cascadia. So I think you're seeing industry really full throttle make a commitment to electrification. 
Now, what's interesting about that is that industry said, well, we're making this big commitment, but we don't feel like the charging network is as robust as it could be. Well, enter the joint office, but also Tesla was here with the supercharger network and they had made a big investment. And so what's happened is by the adoption by some companies of the Tesla connector, others, uh, particularly some of the European companies are going to stick with the CCS. It's created this opportunity for Tesla to open their 30,000 port supercharger network to basically all vehicles over time. And the companies that were going to build the network that either we're funding or seven car companies came out and said they're going to build another 30,000 charger network to build with CCS and the NAX connector. What we had to do is we had to work with SAE, Tesla, all the car companies and get it into the SAE standards process. So it becomes a truly open standard. Why does this matter? Because you don't want one person controlling the charging experience for everybody. So it becomes a truly open standard governed by a standards body. The net net, though, is that we're going to end up with double the number of chargers for the American people to use. Because whether you have a car with CCS, which is almost every car produced now, in the US outside of Tesla's, or you have a Tesla with a NAX connector, or you have a future Ford or GM that has a NAX connector in 2025, 26, 27, you should be able to pull to any charger and use it, whether it's with a permanent UL certified adapter, or it's a charger with that has both CCS and NAX. So I think initially people are like, oh, we have two standards. That's so bad. You know, we already had two standards, but now we're gonna have two standards that are interoperable with the same protocols on the back end. So that the American people should just be able to pull up and charge at instead of only having half the stations available to them, all the stations. So and props to Tesla, props to all the car companies, the EV charging companies for working on this together to make it work with us. Well, we've been talking on this episode of ITE Talks Transportation with Gabe Klein. He is the executive director of the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. Gabe, I know we're still early in the process. Hopefully we can talk again in a future episode and learn a little bit more of what's going on. But thank you so much for being my guest. Oh, thank you, Bernie. I, I would love to. Please have us back on. <laughs>